0: But for now, I hope God speaks powerfully to you through this word. Well, good morning. morning. How is everyone doing this morning? Good. Good. Awesome. Well, I'm glad you're here this morning. If we have not met yet, my name is Brad, and uh, I get to serve as the lead pastor here at New Life. And uh, we're in week two of a series called Christmas Scandals. And if you know anything about the story of Christmas, it is actually a pretty scandalous story. And so I put this out on social media this last week. I sent an email, carrier pigeon, smoke signals, any way I could get you it across that today is a little bit more of a PG-13 uh, message just simply because of some of the content and story that we're diving into today. And so uh, if you're a parent in the room and you need to make accommodations for your kids, uh, feel free to do that. But this is your fair and last warning that there is a little bit of PG-13, not not terrible, but a little bit of PG-13 stuff uh, for this week. Um, and so I would love to open this morning just... Uh, with prayer, because this is a little bit of a harder message this morning. In fact, this is probably not a message I would go into a church as a guest and preach. But this is a, a message that I believe our community needs, and so I speak to you as one of the family this morning. Uh, and so I would love to just open with prayer, and then uh, and then we'll jump in. Jesus, we thank you for your birth, for your presence. God, that you, just as, even as we read in Isaiah 9, that you stepped into human darkness. That you stepped into this sinful and broken and just messed up story. And you intervened. And so God, this morning I pray that whatever people are walking in with this morning, whatever sin issues, whatever heaviness, whatever burden people are walking in with this morning, God, I pray that they will allow you, that they will open their hearts to allow you to rewrite the narrative for us to provide healing where there is brokenness, to provide forgiveness where there is sin, God. God, I just pray you move powerfully in our community, in our family this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I want to start this morning by asking a question that David kind of asked last week, and I want to build on it and go a little bit deeper with it this week. But the, the question that I want to begin with this morning is, who is the good news of Jesus for? Who is the good news of Jesus for? Now, if you were here last week, what was the answer to that? Everyone, right? All people. That's an easy answer to give, right? It's easy to say the good news of Jesus Christ is for all people. This is the announcement that the angels made when they appeared to the shepherds. We bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. That's an easy statement to make. It's easy to generally say that the good news of Jesus is for all people. I think a harder question, though, and maybe a more honest one, is this. Who is the good news of Jesus not for? Who is the good news of Jesus not for? Because it's easy to say the good news of Jesus is for the battered and the abused It's easy to say that the good news of Jesus is for the victim and the violated, for the unborn and the foster kid, for the rich and the poor and the black and and white. But when we ask the question this way, I think it makes it more specific, more personal for us. Like, Like, is the good news of Jesus for your father who left your family as a child and abandoned you? Is the good news of Jesus for him? Is is the good news of Jesus for Ethan Crumbly who murdered four of his classmates in Oxford? Is is the good news of Jesus for those who have hurt you and abused you? Is it for Josh Duggar? Elaine Maxwell and Jeffrey Epstein. Yeah, I went there this morning. <laughs> is the good news of Jesus for both victim and violator alike? Is it for the birth parents who abandon the foster kids that are now in your care? Is it for your spouse? And maybe the hardest one of all, is the good news of Jesus Christ for you? Because here's the deal, guys. The scandal of Christmas, the scandal of Christmas is that the good news of Jesus Christ is for blank. And we all have a name or names that we would put in that blank, don't we? Every single one of us has a name or names that we would have a hard time putting in that blank. The scandal of Christmas is that the good news of Jesus Christ is for blank. It's easy to say all people. It's a lot harder when it gets really painfully specific for us. And we live in a world that likes to celebrate and praise good people and cancel bad people, don't we? Like we live in a world that's obsessed with kind of dividing people between good people and bad people. And I think if you were to do a poll in this room and people watching online, every single one of us, I would assume at least want the world to be rid of evil and injustice and pain for those who are oppressed. But the kicker and the double-edged sword of the story is that I want God to rid the world of evil, but I want him to somehow be able to do it without ridding the world of me. I want God to rid the world of sin and evil, but I want him somehow to do it without getting rid of me. And the hard truth of the scripture is that God does not compare good people and bad people to each other. God compares all people to his son, Jesus Christ. And when that comparison is made, every single one of us come woefully short. Every single one of us come woefully short of deserving what Jesus came to offer us. The Bible says it this way in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So who is, the, who is the good news of Jesus for? You know, this genealogy of Jesus that David did a great job of introducing us to last week, it has people in it that we would deem really good people. And it has people in it that we would absolutely cancel and never want to hear from Again. In fact, within a few words from each other are are names of people who were abused and their abusers right next to each other. This is an offensive story that should kind of agitate and offend every single one of us if we really understand what Matthew is getting at by not sweeping it under the rug like David talked about last week, but by putting it front and center for all of us to see and not be able to look away from. Because when we do that, it actually indicts all of us as sinners, every single one of us. And so if you have your Bible with you this morning, I want you to turn with me to Matthew uh, chapter 1, verse 1. And we're going to look at two stories today in Jesus' genealogy. We're going to kind of compare and contrast two people, two stories in Jesus' genealogy this morning. And so Matthew 1, verse 1 says this, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, and Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, By Tamar, so Tamar is their mother. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. So both of these yellow names here are women listed in genealogy. And like David talked about last week, this was a really rare thing to do because your genealogy was your resume. It was your identity. We, in like kind of Western culture today, we put a lot of stock in kind of what we do, our career, our kind of financial status. They put this same amount of stock, if not more, in their family line, where they came from. And so to do a genealogy is this is where Jesus comes from. This is a picture of who he is and how he came to approach the world. So the first story I want to look at today is the story of Tamar. <laughs> Tamar is a name that most Jewish people would want to forget. In fact, uh, Matthew could have just said it was Judah who was the father. He didn't have to bring up the name Tamar. Tamar is the wife of one of Judah's sons, a guy named Ur. And all it says about Ur is that Ur was an evil man, And God just kind of offed him. (laughs) Like, that's all it says. How would you like that to be your description in the Bible? He was evil, and so the Lord put him to death. That's all it describes about her first husband. And so the the custom of that time, the law of that time, is that if you lost your husband as a woman, you became a widow, and there was no status in society that was more powerless than widows. Your, Your value was not found in your education. It was not found in your job. It was found entirely in your family line, entirely in your ability to bear children. And so when Ur dies, her husband dies, what was customary by law to protect Tamar was for Judah to offer his next son to Tamar. So the next son was a guy named Onan. And Onan really did not want to conceive a baby with Tamar. Like, really, really didn't, and got creative to avoid that thing happening. I'll let you read the R-rated version in the passage. I'm not going to get into that. But he got really creative to do everything in his power to avoid conceiving a a child with Tamar. It was selfish, it was unjust. And so, what does God do for Onan? (laughs) Same exact thing as her. He just kind of strikes him down, takes care of him. And so now, Judah, Tamar's father in law, sees this and he's like, okay, this woman, two of my sons have now died on account of this woman. She's kind of a black widow here, okay? Like, I'm going to send her back to her dad, and he can kind of just deal with her. She's bad luck. And so instead of Judah having Tamar marry his third son, he sends her away to be a widow, worthless and powerless in this society. And so what does Tamar do? In an effort to survive, and by the way, she's about 15 years old in this story. In an effort to survive in this world She dresses herself up as a prostitute and she goes to the roadside and she puts herself out there in hopes that she could possibly conceive a son with anybody who might walk by because that was her ticket to worth in this society. And lo and behold, who comes walking by to hire a hooker? Her father-in-law Judah and he hires his daughter-in-law and ends up conceiving two children with her. But he doesn't know it's her. And I want you to look at what happens in this story in Genesis 38, verse 24. This is such a messed up story, guys. Genesis 38, verses 24 through 26. And three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, let her... Bring her out and let her be burned. Now, I just want to pause here for a second because if if a woman is found guilty of prostitution, it was customary for her to be put to death, for her to be stoned. But Judah doesn't say, let us stone her. He says, let us burn her, which in that world was the most severe pain, probably still in this world, is the most severe, painful way to die. See, he's not just after the law being fulfilled for Tamar. He's after vengeance for Tamar. Burn her. She's a whore, and I knew it all along. This is essentially what Judah is saying about his daughter-in-law. And I want you to watch what happens. As she was being brought out to be put to death, she sent word to a father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. so Judah has his own materials, his own contents come to himself to identify who this man is that impregnated Tamar. And what he sees, <laughs> what he sees shocks him a little bit. There's almost like this awakening, this real. oh my gosh, those are mine. I'm guilty. I'm found out. And this is what he says. He says, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Shelah, And he did not know her again. Guys, this is a messed up story. I mean, it's incest and prostitution and rape and injustice for the widow and the orphan. It's, it's awful. And, and what I, I think is so powerful about it is it's in this moment of, of possibly Judah's greatest hypocrisy where he receives his, his items, his materials, and he, it's not just that he recognizes those things. He actually recognizes his own sin in that moment. He recognizes his own sin. What was his sin? Well, it was two things. It was hooking up with a prostitute. That's like the one a lot of conservative Christians point out, but his his other sin, and this is one that I think sometimes American Christians miss, was depriving his daughter-in-law of the justice that was due to her. See, we often think, well, he was just being stingy. He was just being uncharitable. No, in God's economy, he was being unjust and sinful by not providing for this woman who had need, by hoarding for himself and not providing for this woman. This is what the Bible calls injustice. And when Judas says she is more righteous than I, he is saying she is more just than I. They're the same word. They're interchangeable with each other. See, the scandal of Christmas is that even in a story like this, you can't really identify exactly who is victim and who is violator. Because nobody looks good in a story like this. Everybody's indicted in a story like this. Tamar's indicted. Judah's sons are indicted. Judah's indicted. And I would say this, understanding the scandal of Christmas begins with understanding just like Judah did in the story when he received his items. Wow. This story actually indicts me just as much as it indicts anybody else. So who is the good news of Jesus for? Well, the offensive part of it is that the good news of Jesus is for victim and violator alike, both. And that's a hard truth for us. See, this is a story where nobody looks good. This is a story where like, we would send these people to Dr. Phil to have him put them in their place, Okay, to sort this out. It's a very messed up story. And these are Jesus' ancestors. And Matthew doesn't sweep it under the rug to make Jesus or or the story of Jesus look better or more squeaky clean. He puts it right front and center and says, Judah and Tamar, by name, are part of this story. And it is very broken. Very broken. So that's one story. Bookmark that. We're going to come back to it. The second one is the story of David and Uriah's wife. And this is a story maybe you know. If you <laughs> if you know Leonard Cohen's song, you know this story already. Okay, so this is a story about a guy named David and David is perhaps one of the most significant people in Jesus family line because David is the one who establishes Jesus' kingly rule. This is David is the one who establishes Jesus as a king. And before David ever became king, he was anointed by a guy named Samuel. And the king at the time, Saul, got very, very angry that David was God's chosen one. And so he starts to hunt David down in the wilderness to try to kill him. And there's a group of guys that surround David and help him actually survive. They put their lives on the line to help David survive in the wilderness to avoid being killed by Saul. What was one of those guys' names that helped David survive and put his life on the line for him? Uriah. And not only that, but Uriah, what we know about him is he's one of the most devoted, honorable men to the king. That he will not do anything that will put his king and his family into shame. And so how does David repay Uriah (laughs) for this giving of his own life for the sake of David? Putting his own life on the line for the sake of David? David repays Uriah by stealing his wife from him. See, while Uriah's off at war, David sees his wife, Bathsheba, bathing on a roof, soaking herself. And often we think, well, she was just being promiscuous on the roof. No, she wasn't. She was bathing where you bathed. She was purifying herself, is what the text says. She was doing everything blamelessly in this situation. A lot of people fight about whether or not this was an instance of sexual abuse or consensual I think the text points to it being abuse, to be honest. And the reason I think it points to abuse is not only that Bathsheba was bathing on the roof, doing everything right, but when the king summoned you to come, you could not say no at threat of death. Okay, so she didn't really have much of a choice in the matter. The power dynamic is very unequal. And so here she comes and she sleeps with David. And David, to try to cover it all up, ends up sending Uriah to the front lines of the war to be murdered and killed. So David is not only, at best, kind of a sexually broken person, sexually sinful person, at worst a rapist, but he's also a murderer at this point. He sends Uriah, this guy who's so faithful to him, to go out and be killed by enemies. I prefer the uh, VeggieTales version, it's a little... uh, where the king wants the ducky and then sends out the guy to get pied with blueberry pies in the war. But the other reason why I think this story is actually one of sexual abuse is because Bathsheba is never rebuked for this story. David is. And what happens is a prophet named Nathan comes up and he tells David this story of a man who was traveling and he had a choice to steal sheep from a rich guy or a poor guy and he chose to steal the sheep from the poor guy and David is appalled by the story Nathan tells he's appalled, he's saying who would do this, who would steal the sheep from this poor guy, once again, who would act unjustly towards this guy living in poverty and this is how Nathan responds I just love this he says, it says Nathan said to David you are the man. You are the guy in the story. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel: I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah, same Judah we just talked about. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord David to do what is evil in his sight? Matthew's genealogy doesn't even name Bathsheba. And Matthew doesn't name Bathsheba not because he's leaving her out, but because he's indicting David in this story. The wife of Uriah. You guys, this genealogy should offend you. The fact that victim and violator listed within the same pages, within a couple words, immortalized on these pages, should offend us. Like, have you noticed today, I'm going to get a little uh, cultural here for a second. Have you noticed today how much debate there is over victim versus violator? We just, we debate that endlessly. And we want to categorize people into categories of victim versus violator, full stop. One example is critical theory. Critical race theory does this, right? Where, where certain groups are viewed entirely as oppressors and other groups are viewed as entirely oppressed, And I actually have a a pretty big issue with this way of thinking, and the reason being is because critical theory, critical race theory applied to theology leads us to something called liberation theology. And liberation theology teaches that God is postured towards the oppressed, that he is postured towards the downtrodden, towards the victim, and that he desires to elevate them. I believe that is 100% true. I fully subscribed to that truth. That's all over the pages of Scripture. But the problem comes in when you classify people as oppressors by saying, actually, the gospel is just for the oppressed. It's not for the people who have done the oppressing. That's the problem with liberation theology. That's the problem with critical race theory as, as Christians, is that the gospel then becomes only for one group of people at the expense of the other. And I think what's so powerful about this genealogy, the story, is that it messes with all of the narratives we are fed about who is good and who is bad, who is victim, who is violator. It messes with our narratives and it forces us to reckon with this very personal question for us today. This question here, what role do I play in God's story? Am I a victim or am I a violator? What role do I personally play in God's story? Am I a victim or am I a violator? Maybe you read that and you say, well, well neither. I'm a decent person. I you know, work hard, take care of my family, pay my taxes, whatever. I'm, I'm a decent person. I'm neither in this story. Maybe you read it and you say, well, I'm, I'm a victim. I've been so hurt. And victims are easy to... Sympathize with, empathize with. I'm a victim. Maybe you read this and you initially go to to violator. I've, I've heard a lot of people, I don't have a hard time seeing how I've done that. What role do I play in God's story, victim or violator? You want to know what I think the right answer to that question is? Both. You are both in God's story. You are both Bathsheba and David. You are both Tamar and Judah. In fact, every single one of us living in the broken, sinful world that we live in are both victim and violator of God's story. Think about when he first approached Adam and Eve. They were, number one, victims of the serpent's deception. They were victims, but they were at the same time violators of God's good boundaries that he had put in place for them. They were both. Even Jesus, when he teaches us to pray, he teaches us to pray, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us, right? You are both victim and violator at the same time of sin. Here is, why is it so important that we see ourselves as both? Here's why. Because people who don't see themselves as victims of sin in God's story can convince themselves that they can live on their own merits and their own righteousness, that they have what it takes to pull themselves up out of the hole of the sin and the junk that they have landed themselves in. People who don't see themselves as victims in God's story means that they can somehow rescue themselves or stand on their own abilities or stand on their own righteousness. And I'm here to say there is power in admitting how powerless you are in this story. There is power in me admitting that I actually don't have anything within myself to save myself, to pull myself out of this hole, and to do anything to stand before God on on my own righteousness. You are a victim in God's story, but I'm not saying take on a victim mentality. See, how do you avoid taking on a victim mentality in the story? You have to see yourself as a violator too. the moment you stop seeing yourself as a violator in God's story is the moment that you can convince yourself that the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, is for some people, but not for other people. The moment you stop seeing yourself as a violator in this story is when the gospel becomes for some at the expense of others. The gospel is for good people and not bad people. I want God to rid the world of evil, but I want him to do it without getting rid of me, right? See, there's humility in admitting that you've abused God's story. There is humility in admitting that, that you are a violator in God's story. I had the opportunity um, a couple weeks back, month two back, uh, to go listen to one of the top kind of domestic violence specialists in the whole country. And she was doing a talk on uh, domestic violence in rural communities, specifically. And she talked about this. She's done work in rural communities. She's done work in urban communities. And, and one of the things she said about rural communities is that rural living, and my wife and I live on a dirt road, two acres. Like, we live in the rural part of Wayland here. And uh, one of the things that she said is rural life can be a beautiful life, right? It can be amazing Right? There's uh, like, I accredit living like kind of away from a lot of people as what kept us together during the pandemic and all that stuff. Like, it was just nice to be kind of away from people um, and, and just to be with our family. But, but there's also a dark side to rural living because what you see a lot is that because houses are spread out more and because it's easier to keep things a secret, you actually see very, very high rates of domestic abuse and violence in rural communities. I'm just going to tell you, I have seen that play out in this community many times over. It's a reality of the community that we live in, and and, and all of it. She talked about the trauma and the gaslighting and the narrative that victims are fed that can literally rewire brain function. But then she addressed something that stuck with me above everything else. And this is the thing that I cannot get out of my head from her talk. And I'm just going to read the quote. She said, victims can become violators if they never learn to rewrite the narrative. Victims become violators if they never learn to rewrite the narrative. This impacts individuals, families, whole communities. This is the story who was the little boy who was wounded as a child over and over again and grows up just to become a bigger little boy who looks like a man but is still a boy and just perpetuates those wounds of abuse in his own family. Victims and violators, I mean, in God's story, they're so intertwined with each other. But the good, here's the thing, I've given you a lot of bad news up to this point. This is the good news of the story. And I need you to understand that this this is the profound good news of the story of Jesus Christ, is that Jesus' redeeming power is that he alone can rewrite the narrative for victim and violator alike. This is the good news of Christmas. That he alone has the power to rewrite the narrative. That in God's story, you are both victim and violator. And it is only Jesus Christ who can rewrite that narrative. Let me give you some examples. I hate sexual abuse. I hate it. I hate when I see people taking advantage of each other sexually. I hate sexual abuse. Jesus hates it even more than I do. Jesus hates it even more than you do. Because when Jesus looks at the world, he doesn't just want to get rid of sexual abuse in the world. What Jesus wants to do is get to the root of what causes sexual abuse, and that is lust. And when that is the standard, none of us stand before him innocent. Not a single one of us. Jesus wants to get at the root. He he wants to rewrite the narrative in your life that seeks to use another human being for your own personal gratification. See, it's easy to classify and just say, Jesus wants to take care of those bad people, but In front of Jesus, man, we're all sinners. None of us stand on our own two feet. Here's another one. I I hate racism and genocide. He does too. But instead of merely categorizing people as oppressor or victim, he wants to get at the root of what causes that stuff. He wants to rewrite the narrative and rid your life of every ounce of pride and contempt and superiority that may exist in your heart. I struggle with that stuff. Jesus wants to rewrite that narrative. If you don't believe me, read the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5-7, through he goes example after example after example of, you you have heard it was said this way. And you may read that and you may think to yourself, well, I can stand pretty well on my own two feet. But then Jesus said, but I say to you, none of you have any ground to stand on. That's what he does in the Sermon on the Mount. See, it's a double-edged sword I want God to get rid of evil from the world, but if I am both victim and violator in the story, then in order for him to get rid of evil in the world, he's got to get rid of me and of you. Unless someone comes in to rewrite the narrative. Unless someone comes in who has the power to rewrite this. See, when you get this, when you understand this, when you understand there is nothing in your life, nothing you have walked through, nothing you, that has been done to you, nothing you have done to other people that cannot be rewritten, that cannot be covered by the blood of Jesus Christ, you begin to understand that this is truly good news of great joy for all people, even for the person that you have a hard time putting in that blank. See, Jesus comes, and he lives a perfect life as neither victim victim or violator. He loves and he serves and he gives and rebukes and he heals and he calls out and he draws people to himself. But it's on that cross where he loves this hell-filled world so much, all of the sin, all of the hell that we created, and he allows it to overwhelm him, to kill him, to bury him. It's on the cross where Jesus takes on the role of victim, an innocent man whose blood is shed through no fault of his own. And where Jesus also takes on the role of violator. He who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. See, on that cross, Jesus took on the role of the Josh Duggers of the world. Jesus took on the role of the Ethan Crumblays of the world. Jesus took on the role of the Brad Vandersons of the world. He took on the role of you. This is the hope of Christmas, guys, that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is God's message to the world, that your sin and your your, your Just brokenness and hell do not need to have the last word in your life. This is the hope of Judah and Tamar's story. In spite of your sin, Tamar, you are more righteous than I. Righteousness is still possible. This story, Judah and Tamar, points us to a greater Judah, a greater story of someone who actually has the power to cover all of our sins and all of our shame and all of the stuff we do to each other and we do to ourselves. The same thing is true of David and Bathsheba. David is referred to as a man after God's own heart. This rapist murderer is referred to as a man after God's own heart. Why? Because he repents. This soul, gut-level repentance, saying, God, I don't have the goodness in myself. I am a violator of the worst kind in your story. But God, I need you to give me a new heart. I need you to rewrite the narrative. And you know what happens with Bathsheba? We don't know 100%. We know she becomes the mother of King Solomon. But here's what a lot of scholars believe. That Proverbs 31, the last proverb in the book of Proverbs, that talks about this woman of nobility and strength and character and not fearing man but fearing the Lord and caring for the poor and keeping the orders of her household in in order. Like We actually believe that that passage is talking about who? Bathsheba. Because God has the power to rewrite narratives. He has the power to heal and restore. And so are you offended that the good news is for those who have hurt and abused you? Good, you're getting it. Are you even more offended that the good news of Jesus Christ is for you? Even better, you're really understanding it. This is the scandal of Christmas. And so how do we put this type of thing into practice? Like, practically speaking, how do we make this practical? There's two words that keep coming up over and over again in my mind that I've said before and I'll say again, I'll say to one blue in the face, is these two words right here, forgive and repent. Victim's greatest pathway to freedom is Forgiveness. And there is no greater forgiveness when you also see yourself as a violator in God's story to say, he forgave me? He forgave me? Well, then I have no choice but to forgive those who have hurt me. If you are unsure of how this works, read Matthew 18 and go put your name in the story Jesus actually tells, and you will, you will realize how incredibly important and freeing forgiveness is in this story and rewrite in rewriting the narrative. Forgiveness is not reconciliation. It is not necessarily putting, your, it's not putting yourself in harm's way. I want to be really clear about this for those who have been hurt and abused. It is not putting yourself back in that position. But it's forgiving. It's understanding how deeply the work of God on the cross has impacted me, that my only option, the only reasonable response, is extending that to other people. And then the second one here is Repent. Violators need to repent. Like serious, soul level repentance. A repentance that isn't just words, but is action that actually is going towards sin. And repentance is saying, no, I'm putting a stake in the ground, and I'm turning and doing a 180 and walking back towards the person of Jesus. Violators need to repent. And if every single one of us sees ourselves as violators in God's story, then then the posture of our lives is one of constant repentance over and over again. Man, I want to talk to you for a second. If you are abusing your family, stop. As clearly as I can say it, stop and repent. Don't act like a boy. Step up. Be a man. Yeah, you were a victim, but you're also a violator. Repentance is the only thing that can rewrite the narrative in your story. And so as the band makes their way back up this morning, I know this is a heavy week. And this, by the way, is the heaviest week of the series, okay? It gets lighter from here. We get to talk about Rahab the prostitute next week. So uh, there you go. Um, This is the heaviest, but I think our sin needs to feel heavy because it's in the heaviness where the light of who Jesus is actually has the power to shine the brightest. So as we close today, this is what I want to do. I want to read David's words after Nathan confronted him. And they're not going to be on the screen. I'm going to read them right out of the the good book here. And I just want to read these words. And then what we're going to do is we're going to there's going to be an invitation during worship just to respond in repentance, just right where you are. To just lay it all out, to say God, this is who I need to forgive. Maybe there's a name that comes to your mind. God, this is where I need to repent. Maybe there's something going on in your life that's under the surface that nobody else sees. Bring that to Jesus. Because he alone has the power to rewrite that narrative. So this is what David says right after he's found out about Bathsheba, right when Nathan confronts him. This is his response. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love according to your abundant mercy blot out my transgressions wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me against you God you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight I am a violator that's what he's saying here So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. You delight in the uncovering of that. And you teach me wisdom in the secret place. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I should be whiter than snow. This is language that does not see himself as someone other than a victim who who is completely reliant on God to bring him out of that pit and bring him out of that hole. It is not by your own strength. It's by his alone. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. I love this. Create in me. A clean heart, O God. And renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold within me a willing spirit. Then, I love this. Listen to the redemption here. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. And then don't miss this last one, because this is the place where I want us to be today. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a brokenness over our own sin. A broken and contrite heart, oh God, you will not despise. Man, this is good news. Every single one of you, for me, all of us. And so will you participate in this? Will you practice this this idea of forgiving and repenting, this rhythm of your life, that is your greatest path to freedom in Christ? Let me pray, and then we're gonna worship. God, I hope there's some crushed bones in this place today. God, I pray for some crushed spirits. God, even in preparation for this message this week, you have have crushed my own spirit. You have convicted me of areas in my life where where I need to practice repentance, God, where I need to forgive people. And so God, this morning, I pray that maybe for some in this room and and watching online, there's a name that's coming to mind. There's a name, there's a face and and your message to them is forgive that person because my good news is for them too. Maybe for others of us. There's a deep-rooted sin issue. Just junk that we've never dealt with. Wounds that we've allowed to just perpetuate and hurt and wound other people over and over again. God, may we practice repentance. May we turn from those ways and turn back to you and allow you and invite you to be the one who carries us. Freedom. God, you alone rewrite the narrative. For that, we say thank you. In Jesus' holy and matchless name we pray and everybody said amen.